Welcome to episode 10 of Blind Fly Theater. We're so glad you decided to listen to our program. We hope you like it. My name is David Laurel Hoskins. And, uh, oh. So who's the guy playing the organ down there? That is... Hold on just a minute, Fly. Let me look it up again. Yeah, Fly, that's the ghost of Albert Berman. He was the organ player, the keyboardist for the 1940s radio show Quiet, Please. Oh, so that guy was just fooling around when he was saying, quiet, please? Yeah, and you were a little bit rude to that audience down there. I thought he wanted to be quiet. All right. What's the name of our episode today, Dave? It is another episode of Theo Trouvert. This time, it's called Static. Yep. Well, listen, we have to um, head off to a commercial. Uh, Dave, I didn't set one up. Uh, Well, I did this time, Fly. Well, what's the commercial for? Well, we took on a sponsor for a free product for you. For me? What is it? Well, it's something that uh, we've all decided you really need. Oh, really? What's it for? You'll find out. Play it, Nefertiti. There's nothing so dismal as a foghorn. Unless it's somebody with B.O., that's really dismal. Yes, and the most dismal thing about B.O. is nobody tells you about it. You think it's you they don't like when actually it's B.O. So don't risk offending. Stop B.O. now with the new 1942 Life Boy. Remember, it's new. It's different. Here's why. New added ingredient. New vanishing scent. Same protective lather. Start now taking a daily bath with the new 1942 Life Boy. From head to toe, it stops B.O. Get several cakes of the new 1942 Life Boy today. Remember, there's nothing more dismal than... Ha ha ha, Dave. Real funny. Well, it's just a little bit of your own medicine there. Yeah, but I don't have B.O. Yes, you do, Fly. Flies don't have B.O. Uh, yes, you do. And you think it might have to do with your diet? Diet? What do you mean? You know. What? The, uh, junk food? Oh, you mean the lobby treats? No. Um, your favorite. Oh, you're talking about feces? Yeah, yeah. That's that's it, Fly. Let's just move on. Oh, no, I can't stop eating that. No, I didn't think you'd be able to stop, so let's go ahead and move on. All right. Finger looking good. Uh, be, okay. Hey, Fly. Oh, Dave, don't be so tight. Don't talk about Don't be so uptight. They don't care. But we should get into the episode. By the way, Dave, what's all this static from? 
What's static? Well, there's an underlying floor static. Uh, here, let me bring it up for you. You hear that? Yeah, fly. Yeah. Uh, turn, turn it back down. Well, why don't you turn it down all the way? I can't, babe. Ever since the ghost came in last night, we've been having this static. Oh. Our guests from Quiet Please were here this morning. Archobler? No. No, baby. Archobler's next week. It was uh, Willis Cooper. Willis Cooper, who was the producer of Quiet Please, and um, Ernest Chapel. Chapel. Ernest Chapel, the guy who told you what was coming up. He was also an actor in it too. Oh, that's a guy trying to fix me pork chops. Yeah, that's the one. And they're the ghosts that are in our machine. Yep. Causing static. Yep, that's right. So, speaking of static. Our episode today, once again, is Theo Trouvert in Static. 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 Enjoy. Come on, boys. Let's get the good seats. Metro Red Line headed to the heart of D.C. The early morning sun is bright and it reflects sharply off the buildings. There's a crack spreading in my skull and my teeth are vibrating. I lift my left arm and look at my wrist. It leaves me questioning my sanity. I pull out my phone, it says 909. I paid an extra 80 bucks for the express from New York to Washington this morning. It promised to shave an hour off my trip. It arrived at Union Station 28 minutes late. It still puts me 32 minutes ahead. Odds are I'll make it. I've got a 9.30 appointment at the FBI building in the Hoover sublevel whatever that means. They shorted me $16,000 for the reward on William Rempel. Even with the help of Detective Bergman and a lawyer. Looks like we're almost to Chinatown, my stop. There's a three-block walk from the stop. I'm shielded by blue stretches of shadow, and my disposition relents. It's a mild late summer day with swimming blue skies and cotton clouds. The J. Edgar Hoover building is daunting, but I enter fresh and confident. The lobby is rotund, with a shiny marble floor encrusted with a massive emblem. An automated avatar greets me. How may I help you, sir? And then recognizes me before I have a chance to react. Yes, Mr. True Bear. Here is your visitor's pass. Please follow the yellow line to our waiting room. A monolith of a man wearing a crisp, dark sport coat 
points to a blue door with white lettering. Waiting room. Inside is a large group of teens, most standing, separated into various sized cliques. A class trip, I suppose. I find a seat in the opposite corner and examine my pass. There's a sizable picture of me, obviously taken with stealth at the Avatar kiosk moments ago. The lamination is still warm. I slip the lanyard over my head as a young woman approaches. Hello there. I'd have mistaken her for another student, but for the ID tag, Cindy Shenandoah, records examiner. She leads me out through a sea of blue cubicles. As her chatter betrays status. An obvious regurgitation of recent training. And it can really take its toll. I let the monologue fade as my focus turns to the vibrating hive around us. It seems so choreographed. Small groups forming and dispersing. All regimented professionalism. We come to a stop at a curved aluminum door protruding from a metal wall. Really just relax and try not to take it personally. I cock my head as she walks away. What did those last words mean? Really just relax and try not to take it personally. I'm startled from contemplation by a sudden movement in the wall. Please enter the capsule, Mr. Trubert. Thank you. Please place each of your feet on the designated outlines on the floor. You will hear and feel several puffs of air. Then the capsule will rotate 180 degrees and open to the interior corridor. Thank you for your cooperation. Please watch your step as you exit. Thank you, Mr. Trouvert. Have a good day. I step out, greeted by two soldiers in desert khakis. This way, Mr. Trouvert. They lead me down a long, narrow hallway, one in front of me, and the other behind, poised with an M4 carbine. The soldier in front steps into a booth and then motions for me to continue alone. Please continue until you reach the iron door, sir. This portion is more of a cylinder than a hallway, kind of a walk-through CAT scan. My flesh tingles and my hair follicles stiffen. It ends at solid iron doors, an industrial elevator constructed with rivets more suited for the Eiffel Tower. Please wait right here, Mr. Trouvert. Someone will be with you in a few moments. Thank you. Robo-voice is more familiar than I'd like him to be. I glance back through the tube. The soldier in the hall is unflinching, his M4 poised at a 45-degree angle between me and the floor. The other steps out from a booth and waves, and the M4 soldier relaxes. 
I turn back to the iron elevator. A red light now flashes above, turns yellow, and then solid green, and the door is open. I step into the elevator, one large enough to carry a tank. I'm greeted by a special agent, Morpheus. Agent Morpheus, nice to meet you, sir. I suppress my laughter. Please grip the railings with both hands. Thank you, sir. The car rapidly descends, accelerating to what feels like a freefall. The hair on my head floats as my knuckles whiten. As we slow, gravity reasserts itself, and my legs stiffen and readjust for balance. I look at Morpheus. He smirks and chuckles. <laughs> the door is open. We're greeted by muffled blasts from an enclosed firearms range, and an attractive young woman introduced as field agent to Kushian. Welcome to the Hoover sublevel, Mr. Trudeau. She leads us through a maze of halls, commenting on the various research labs we pass. This is our chemical lab. But I catch none of it. Her silky black hair and glistening dark eyes trip my composure more than they should. I'm a married man, devoted, rarely distracted. The rapid plunge or oxygen density at these depths may be affecting my perceptions. I wonder just how far down we are. I'm finally led to a quiet corner of the subcomplex. Morpheus opens a door labeled S922 and tells me to take a seat that someone will be in shortly. The room's about 12 by 15, walls veneered in slick white plastic, simultaneously retro and ultra-modern. But the back wall is new, fresh plasterboard with screw heads exposed. A resonating hum envelops the sterile place. I rest my right arm on the empty table before me. Along the wall immediately to my right is a tiny kitchenette. I stretch my mouth into a gaping yawn, and my eyes water. A soothing vibration in the floor lulls me to comfort, and invades my shoes, stimulating almost tickling my feet. It creeps up through my ankles, and infiltrates the deep muscle fibers of my calves. It seems to pull down on them, beckoning me deep. As my eyelids fall and the room fades, I feel a tear fall from my left eye and run a cool path down my cheek. The dream is quite funny at first. Peter Sellers reprises his role as Dr. Strangelove, but without the costume. He's supposed to be monitoring me through a one-way mirror, but my room is dark and his brightly lit. He nervously pulls a white and red pack of lucky strikes from his coat pocket and fumbles to extract one. 
I silently chuckle at the affable shtick. He finally gets one and lights it, taking a long drag. But the more I watch, the more I realize he's truly frustrated with me and how I've turned the tables on him. The scene ends and everything fades to pitch black. As my eyes adjust, I find myself at the bottom of a large cylindrical shaft. I look up and think this is what it must feel like to be trapped in a well. The opening seems so far above me. It's a small round cutout of the night sky, stars sparkling. It must be a thousand feet or more. How will I get out? Of course I'm dreaming. I feel my body float off the concrete floor and quickly ascend. Finally, I'm shot at great velocity into the night sky. I level off and fly as if to circle the earth. Pinpoints and clusters of light become more prominent. Coming my way over the horizon is a shape I recognize. It's the massive blackness of the Great Lakes, outlined by lights. An unbearably bright flash of light ignites high above me, and I slam my eyes shut. When they open again, the flash has died, and the lights of the eastern seaboard flicker out in patches until all is dark. I feel my trajectory shift back towards the earth. I clench my face tight, dreading the inevitable impact. again in S922. Thankfully, I haven't drooled all over myself, but my mouth is really dry. My breathing is quick and shallow. My stomach is tied in knots, and a deepening sense of dread wells up within my chest. The clock says 9.50. I turn to the door. It seems to be breathing ever so slightly. That's ridiculous, I think. I've got to pull it together and quick, but the dread is building trying to choke me. The break in silence almost stops my heart dead. It's Agent Dekushian. Thanks for waiting, Theo. Would you like some coffee? Her voice tranquilizes. I take her up on her offer and then quickly ask for water instead. Sure. There's a Poland Springs in the mini-fridge. I stretch my arm to the fridge door, but she beats me to it. She reaches in, pulls out a bottle, and dangles it in front of me. I pull it from her grasp and watch her wet fingertips slide from it in slow motion. She turns back to the kitchenette, and I watch as she slips the blazer from her shoulders and down her arms. She hangs it on a hook above the short fridge. I admire her figure as she pours her coffee. A recessed spotlight shines directly down upon her, drenching her hair and shoulders leaving the delicate curve of her lower back in shadow and cascading straight over and around the pulsating heart bound tight in that skirt. I crack open the water and take a sip, startled by just how dry my mouth is. I'm suddenly struck by the strange urge for a cigarette. I've never smoked, never wanted to, repulsed as a child by my father's chain of palm malls. 
But here I am, desperately craving a smoke. Lucky strikes, to be exact. Takushian turns and takes a seat across the table, blowing into her coffee and taking a sip. I ask her what the mystery is all about, why I've been meticulously filtered into an area obviously meant for secret clearances. Do you even know why I'm here, Agent Takushian? Yes, I do, Mr. Truvere. She zips open a slim leather portfolio hanging from her belt. She pulls out a plain white envelope, and my eyes track the sparkling pink polish as she slides it across the table. I take another sip of water, slide the envelope up, lift the unsealed flap, and peek in at Lady Liberty. I check for $18,000. They only owe me sixteen. I hesitate before lifting my head and asking, Eighteen? Two thousand for today. Today? We'd like to enter a more formal relationship with you, Theo. Relationship? As a consultant, of sorts. Do you have a bit more time? I'd like you to meet with a few other agents before you go. I nod in agreement and glance down at the table. Beside my envelope is now a pack of cigarettes. Lucky strikes. I take a deep drag on the one dangling from my lips and watch with satisfaction as the tip glows bright cherry. The hallucination fades as I exhale. I'm left feeling deeply nauseous. Feeling okay, Mr. Trevere? I tell her I'm just fine, but she knows I'm not. I've never felt this transparent before. I lift my water and take several swallows, finishing it off. The nausea subsides, but a headache is building. I feel an aggressiveness welling up within me, and I welcome it. Do you smoke, Agent Takushian? She hesitates and her eyebrows lift slightly, almost imperceptibly, as she shakes her head no. Does anyone around here smoke? Lucky strikes in particular? All expression drains from her face, and I, for the first time since arriving today, feel I've gained the upper hand. I ask if we could please get things moving along, that I'd like to get this over with as quickly as possible. She stands abruptly. Thank you for your time. And Agent Strieber will be in with you in a moment. And I stand as she exits. I glance over at her jacket still hanging above the mini-fridge. The door opens again. Agent Strieber bears a striking resemblance to Peter Sellers. He smirks and tosses something on the table. A white pack with a red target. Lucky strikes. It doesn't take long to regret my decision to rent a car and drive home. All lanes to the Tidings Bridge are backed up. I've got too much time to contemplate the crossing, high above the mile-wide Susquehanna River. I'm barely past the booth when my fear of heights kicks in. I dangerously cross two lanes of unpredictably accelerating traffic the last remnant of a shoulder. I squeeze close to the cement barrier before a large reflective green and white sign, no stopping. Its green turns to dark gray and the letters to pools of sand, flowing together into a swirl, a circling whirlpool threatening to suck me in. 
My head swims and I close my eyes. I breathe slowly, rhythmically, and the vertigo begins to subside. I open my eyes. It's a clear, starlit night, and the moon up in the north. And though I find myself sitting atop a trestle midway across the bridge and hundreds of feet above the dark waters, I'm feeling calm and relaxed. I'm holding an old Zenith shortwave radio. I'm not surprised that I can't tune anything in, though I'm sure it's possible. Unfortunately, the radio slips from my hands and falls down to the river below. I see it splash and sink. Seconds later, it starts to glow within the currents below. Then a bright flash. It has sparked into a ball of blue and orange deep within the river. I'm horrified at what I've just unleashed. The ball turns into a ring of fire, rippling out into a massive display. A deep humming sound, a heavy static, wells up. It's coming from just below me, from under my legs. There's a thick black cable attached to the trestle, running the length of the bridge. It must be a high-tension power line, and I stare at it, paralyzed with the fear of electrocution. And the cable glows a viscous plasma, an ethereal green. I close my eyes again, and take in a few slow, deep breaths. My heart pounds fast and hard. I'm now afraid of falling. Both hands grasp the edge of the steel beam on which I sit, knuckles aching against my grip. But I breathe more deeply, and soon stability creeps back into my consciousness. I open my eyes. I'm back in the car. Traffic is thinned and is now traveling freely onto the bridge. The character of light has changed. The landscape is tinted more orange. The shadows a darker blue stretch long and horizontal over the hills. I look into the rear view, squinting against the sun's reflection, and see the silhouette of a car pulling to the shoulder behind me. The officer almost gets creamed by a semi as he steps from his vehicle. His shadow reaches my door long before he does. Hi, how are you? Can I see your driver's license for registration for insurance, please? Officer Obvious pointed out a huge no-stopping sign directly in front of us and issued me a ticket, $375. He told me to have a nice day. Chicken shit jackass. I feel no trepidation crossing the bridge, soaking in the lake breeze and beautiful landscape, letting the unfortunate incident roll off my back. I have a check for $18,000 in my pocket. And with the FBI's interest, there were surely greater fortunes to come. My mind wanders back to the vision, the expanding ring of fire, 
the high tension wire. My mind settles back on the Hoover sublevel. The appointment was a setup. They withheld the chunk of reward to lure me deep for a vetting process. Someone had done their homework, investigating my short career as an NYPD officer. That would have led to my personnel jacket and to that bright red flag, the psych order, the one that dismissed me as unstable, vulnerable to hallucination. After Takushian, there were three. Streber, the Peter Sellers look-alike, was the most aggressive. After tossing the pack of luckies on the table and chuckling, he called me a charlatan, a purveyor of cheap parlor tricks. He expounded with fanatic fervor on logical explanations for my so-called psychic abilities, particularly in the Sebastian and Rempel cases. But Streber failed to rile me. I was too busy stifling laughter, picturing him as Dr. Strangelove. Number two introduced himself as Agent Fishbowl, another silly moniker. I wonder if he hangs with Morpheus. Fishbowl's role was recruitment, saying I could help predict terrorist attacks. I told him I'm only able to see the past. He said that vivid retrocognition, such as mine, is often linked with precognition and even clairvoyance. I rejected his assumptions, but it felt good to be validated. The third and last visitor was actually CIA. Special Agent Robert McIvy, also known as Ivy Mike, was well past retirement age. He seemed more loving grandfather than grizzled veteran, though, telling stories and making me laugh. At the time, it seemed his sole objective was decompression, the restorer of goodwill before I left. But thinking about it now, the CIA doesn't retain high pay-grade agents for comic relief. I suspect he was pulling all the strings. Feels good to be home again. Trudy? Hey, Trudy. A note on the fridge reminds me. Trudy's at her mother's in Cheapshead Bay for the night. I pour myself a glass of white Zin, head for the couch, and settle in for my favorite crime drama. What the devil are you doing here? Oh, just sort of killing time, looking around. You know, sir, I could I could turn into a real orchid fancier since I met you. Damn it, Colombo. What's this all about? It's very serious, sir. There's been a new development in the case. Yes, sir. How I'd like to work with that guy. If only he were real. 
I feel myself falling again and watch helplessly as the glass slips from my dangling hand, splashing to the carpet below. I'm back on the bridge. I realize the ring of fire in the river is actually a reflection off the water. I look to the northern sky, there beside the full moon, high in the atmosphere. It shines bright and then dims into a glowing sphere the size of the moon, a blue bubble filled with billowing white smoke. I look down, I'm holding it again the old Zenith transoceanic shortwave radio. The scene changes. It's a 4th of July party on the rooftop of an apartment building. We're six stories above Salvatore's Deli at 4th and 73rd. We've all been waiting for the fireworks, but they've been delayed due to high winds. Sal calls me over to introduce one of his tenants, Penelope Lane. Everyone calls me Penny. It dawns on me. Penny Lane, I ask. Your parents must have been fans of the Beatles. No, I was named after my grandmother. And the moment is awkward. She turns and taps the shoulder of a woman behind her. I'm going back to the apartment. The wind is really getting to me. Penny's about to leave when a friend calls to her and asks what apartment she's in again. I'm in 4B. Suddenly, everyone turns to watch the fireworks. I join in and look high in the northern sky to the flash that dims to a big blue bubble of smoke beside the bright full moon. The sound of static fills the air, and everyone looks around. It seems to be coming from the power lines. The lights go out. The entire city must have lost power. Even the skyscrapers have gone dark. The building trembles. Bodies jam the exit. I breathe deep and the wind whips my hair. I look up and see the sky as I've never seen it before. A rich blanket of stars. One of them really glimmers, sparkles. But it's not a star. It's the fire of a huge rocket, a missile, descending on us to claim its own ground zero, one to dwarf all others. This morning, relieved that it was all just a dream. But that was three hours ago. I'm now at a window seat at Salvatore's Deli. My stomach aches. Trudy returned an hour ago with a surprise for me. She bought it this morning at an antique shop. 
When I saw it, I almost fell over. I was so stunned. She took that as excitement, and I played along. It was an old Zenith transoceanic shortwave radio. I left my smartphone to investigate moon phases for the month of July, but decide against it. I look back out the window and recognize a woman walking past. I stand up, feeling a little dizzy, and walk towards the door. I step quietly out onto the sidewalk and watch as she walks away. She turns and climbs the steps. They lead to a doorway adjacent to the deli in the same building. I walk slowly as she disappears inside. I hesitate before climbing the steps to the apartment buzzers. My finger runs up and over a list of names, and I stop. I lean against the wall and breathe deeply. Apartment 4B, Penelope Lane.
schizophrenia, ladies and gentlemen. Ready for the credits, Dave? I sure am, Fly. Thanks to these musicians and composers from SoundCloud.com. Mark Mosier for Dark Signals. Sam Kablam for Number Zero. For Tacky Poe Desate Hodin for Industrial Shepherd. One Infinite Loop Eden for First Theremin. And Schizobraniac for The Mad Tea Party Requiem and Fashion Parasites. Fly performed Caesar Frank's 1899 Symphony in D minor, also known as the Quiet Please theme song. For sound effects, thanks to Mike Koenig from SoundBible.com. Thanks to Freesound.org and these individual artists. Fly, take it away. Merrick, Rector Mueller, CMU Sound Design, Audible Edge, Twisted Lemon, Dobro, Waterboy 920, Halleck, Rasta Taper, R. Humphreys, Velvorn, LG, Burnsed, Sage Turtle, Greg Beaumont, Ahu, Suanho, Acclivity, J. Bates 18, ERH, WIM, Freakman, Ennui, Herbert Boland, Anton, Cyril Lawyer, UE Soundboys, and Stigeon. And thanks to our voice actors, Julie Hoverson from 19NocturneBoulevard.net, Gwendolyn Jensen Woodard from gypsyaudio.org and thanks also to Russell Gold. You can find more about these credits along with links at blindflytheater.com. Thanks for joining us. We'll see you next week. Yeah, y'all come back again, you hear? Fly.